Welcome to Westminster Presbyterian Church. I'm Donald Meisel, minister with my colleagues to and with this downtown Minneapolis congregation. In this second year of sponsoring these noontime forums, town hall forums, our overarching theme remains the same, voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. Now, over the past eight forums, and this is our ninth, we have brought individuals of known competence and conscience to address the issues resident in such diverse areas as music, government, women's issues, the Middle East, medicine, the moral majority, corporate life, the arms race. Now, ultimately, all these issues, I think you will agree, are extensions of the condition of the human spirit, the individual human psyche. And so finally today, we have someone with us of known competence and moral perspective to talk about the most important of all frontiers, the inner frontier. Dr. Rollo May, widely respected psychoanalyst, is perhaps best known for his writings, including such books as The Meaning of Anxiety, Love and Will, The Courage to Create, and then just published in the last few weeks, Freedom and Destiny. And his theme today, appropriately, is the crisis of freedom. Dr. May, we did not order this weather, but the climate for your reception here today just couldn't be better. We welcome you. Dr. Meisel and friends, I think you all ought to have a prize for coming out to a meeting on a day like this. Uh, but I hope that uh, our topic this morning, which to me is fascinating, uh, will be of sufficient interest to you so that that will uh, do as your prize. Human freedom uh, is a tremendously uh, significant aspect. It's what makes us human beings compared to the rest uh, of nature. Every organ, other organ, or aspect of our nature that we have uh, has its own being, its own function, identical with its nature. That is, the eyes are made to see, and they see, the heart is made to pump uh, blood. Uh, if we take values like beauty, we know what uh, we mean when we say something is beautiful. But freedom is the great exception because the nature of freedom is to change itself. The nature of freedom is that we cannot predict uh, what, uh, how it is going to uh, show itself. This is why almost all of our definitions of freedom are negations. I'm free tomorrow means I don't have to work tomorrow. Uh, I have no class, therefore I'm free. 
And one speaks of freedom always as a vacuum. Now, I'll come back to that in a moment. But this is what makes freedom so fascinating, the impossibility of predicting it. What makes freedom so fascinating uh, and so uh, tremendously important and also uh, so dangerous. Freedom, I believe, is the most loved word uh, in our uh, vocabulary. Freedom is the capacity of each person to develop to his or her full uh, potentialities. It's also the basis of our values. If someone says, for example, that he or she loves uh, us, uh, if he is not free uh, to say that, we do not value the love because it's in, it probably is simply dependence or a conformity. Or take honesty. If someone, uh, well, like Benjamin Franklin said, honesty is the best policy. Well, if honesty is a good policy, it's not honesty at all. It's not an aspect of ethics or values. It's simply good business. The value of honesty lies when one can uh, make an honest uh, decision or statement even though it goes against his monetary gain. Now, in our tradition, uh, with freedom as our most precious word and our most precious experience, there is, in the last few decades, a, a, a very sharp paradox. Because freedom is very much mocked in our uh, society. It's as though when somebody talks about freedom, they're uh, trying, to, uh, 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 trying to put something over on us. Someone in a commencement address uses the word freedom. We yawn and look around to see uh, what he's trying to uh, fool us uh, with. Uh, the McCarthy episodes uh, back in the 1950s were examples of how a senator and other senators uh, tried to convince us that our liberty could be saved only if, we took, if they took our freedom away. And this use of freedom, hypocritical, uh, dastardly as it is, uh, is, the, uh, is, is, is central in the destruction of the meaning of this uh, much-loved uh, word. I came across a statement in a magazine a few days ago which said, like the good Germans, we in America continue to think we are free while the walls of dossiers, the machinery of repression, the weapons of political assassination pile up all around us. Where is the movement to restore our freedom? Who are the leaders that are prepared to insist that it won't happen here? And then we hear the haunting chorus of the last words in the movie Nashville. It don't worry me, it don't worry me. You may say that I ain't free, but it don't worry me. 
Is this to be the final epitaph of uh, American uh, freedom? Now I want to push deeper into the meaning of freedom in, uh, under four headings. The first is the freedom to be. The second, the freedom to create. The third, the freedom to love. And the fourth, <coughs> the freedom to confront death. Let me illustrate the first, the freedom of being, by the statements of a prisoner in San Quentin, whom Phil Zimbardo, a psychologist at uh, Stanford University, interviewed recently. This man was a Chicano. Uh, it's probably had a good deal to do with his being in San Quentin. He was also a poet. Uh, he could not take the pushing around uh, that goes on in San Quentin. So they put him in solitary confinement. And he'd been there for five years. Now what surprises me immediately is, how could a man keep sane for that uh, period of time? But he tells us in these words. Uh, in San Quentin, they call solitary confinement with a strange kind of irony, maximum adjustment center. Now, what this uh, man said um, was as follows. They have separated me from my family. They have deprived me of touching my young boy. They have exchanged their concrete and steel for earth and flowers and everything warm and soft. They have left me with nothing, nothing except an inner core, a secret private place, where they have not yet found out how to get to. Now this man is searching for this inner core. And then he goes on, this is where I think of who I am, where I try to understand the what and the why uh, of my enemies. Although sometimes I get depressed and feel like giving up, the discovery of myself and my thoughts gives me joy. For until they find a way to take my thoughts away, I am free. And then uh, he ends this with something that always blows my mind. A man can live without liberty, but he cannot live without freedom. And what he means is that one can live under such horrible conditions as San Quentin. One can live under a fascist government uh, uh, if uh, if it is inescapable, but he cannot live, or she cannot live, no human being can live without this inner core uh, that uh, this uh, uh, prisoner is talking about. Now Bruno Bettelheim, who was a renowned psychologist for a number of years uh, down in Chicago, uh, tells about his own experience in the concentration camp in the last war under Hitler. Uh, and he says, in the concentration camp, we had no freedom of action at all. We could not influence what the SS troopers uh, uh, did uh, to us. But we had still, Bruno calls it, the ultimate freedom. And that was the freedom to choose our own attitude toward our, our persecutors. Now this goes, this is saying the same thing 
as the prisoner in San Quentin. It's very much, very much situation like this prisoner uh, in the concentration camp. But freedom consists of being, to start with. Freedom is an inner core by which I choose my attitudes toward the stormtroopers, regardless of the fact that they are my sworn enemies, or in spite of that fact, just as the prisoner in San Quentin uh, chooses his attitude uh, toward um, uh, the prison guards. Now, this freedom of being requires an awareness of one's own uh, being. And here I want to say a few words about the necessity of one's inner relationship. The necessity, I want to call it, uh, of the pause. And the pause is the time when the prisoner uh, in San Quentin thinks about, as he says, his enemy and uh, himself. It's the pause when Bettelheim draws together his own attitudes uh, uh, in the concentration camp. And this pause is what is now coming into our country by way of Buddhism and the uh, religions of the East to remind us of something that we have forgotten in Christianity, namely meditation, uh, concentration, the openness, uh, the, the blankness that is the greatest fullness within ourselves, a state of nothingness, which as the Hindu philosophers through the ages have taught us is the state of greatest somethingness. The zero, incidentally, was invented by uh, these Hindu philosophers. And by this zero, the great power of mathematics in the modern day has developed. Now, what is a zero? Well, a zero is nothing. What is a minus zero? But, is, but this nothingness is essential if we are to discover the somethingness of mathematics, but more importantly, individually, the somethingness of uh, ourselves. The meditation that is our way of pausing, our way of reflecting, our way of, of letting in nothingness uh, with the expectation that there will come along with this some uh, new guidance of uh, great import. Swami Muktananda, who is a, a guru out in, uh, well, he's in the West and also in, in uh, India, and he says that the a Sanskrit uh, of breathing is hamsa, ham exhaling, sa inhaling. And in the gap between these two, God speaks to you. Now I would want to phrase that in the gap between these two, we get our insights, we get our sense of core that this prisoner was talking about. We get our inspirations. Um, we get our uh, great thoughts. The significance of this pause uh, is that the rigid chain of cause and effect is then suspended. We no longer simply are responding 
uh, like uh, automatons to our conditioning. It's in this pause that comes our sense of our own core, our wonderings, our imaginings, uh, our ponderings. It's this, in this pause that uh, we reflect. Now, let us ask then how creativity comes out in, uh, how freedom comes out in creativity. Creativity is the expression of one's freedom. In the pause there comes one's ideas uh, on the topic, incidentally, to which you are most committed in your active life. I don't want to leave the impression you simply go to Florida and lie on Miami Beach and there you'll get your ideas of genius. I mean that the ideas come to us when uh, on subjects that we have been slaving away hour after hour and then we knock off the slaving. We meditate, we relax, and often in this pause there comes the uh, creative idea. I'm speaking of creativity not only in art and poetry and drama, but in business life, in diplomacy, in all activities uh, of um, human uh, existence. In order to be free to create, one must have the courage to be solitary, the freedom to turn loneliness into a creative solitude. I have made quite a study, uh, at least uh, I've studied at some time, uh, the lives of creative people, Michelangelo, Beethoven, uh, Mozart, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, um, and I have been impressed that each one of these persons uh, takes the moment of silence, the moment of pausing, uh, in order to be able to, the moment of uh, simply looking, the moment of seeing, uh, as, as it, it's taught to us by the, the uh, uh, people from the, the Orient. The pausing to see takes this moment as the time when the idea will come out. This is why artists will stand back from their canvas and simply look. Uh, this is uh, uh, why um, so often the creative people are the people who have learned uh, to use solitude. The distinction between them and us, well, I think we're all creative to some extent. The distinction between, uh, what I want to say is, when we have creative ideas as well, uh, this comes at the point when we can take our loneliness uh, that all of us feel to some extent and shift that into creative solitude. Shift that into the mood in which uh, between hamsa, the inspirations, the ideas uh, may uh, come to us. Now if we want also to ask <coughs> What is the difference between ourselves or between, uh, say, the uh, ordinary person um, and uh, Michelangelo and Beethoven and so on? Uh, what I find is the difference is that they have learned this, uh, this trade uh, 
through their own suffering. Um, the, uh, a study of creative persons was done down at Harvard by uh, Joseph Kagan. Uh, ends up with the conclusion, such freedom is not born. He's talking about the freedom that goes into creation. Such freedom is not born. It is made in the pain of adolescent loneliness. It's made in isolate, the isolation of physical handicaps, or perhaps in the uh, smug superiority of inherited title. Is what he is trying to say is the difficulties that we have to struggle with are precisely the way that we uh, develop the freedom to change our loneliness into a, a creative solitude uh, and then to use this solitude uh, for uh, our, uh, our creative uh, works. Picasso used to get up in the middle of a meal uh, and say there were important dinner guests there, at least important to his wife and family. He would get up in the middle of the meal and go into his studio. Um, now, this is why creative people so often seem ruthless. Um, I once uh, invited to dinner at my place when I lived in New York, Mark Toby, who was a uh, uh, very important modern artist from the, um, in the, uh, Seattle. Uh, and uh, Mark too would be doing the meal would suddenly start to hum. Now, that's not what you do at a dinner, um, but it's what Mark Toby does. Um, now the ruthlessness of creative people uh, is the, uh, the ruthlessness of great numbers of them that you can, you, know, you have experienced and perhaps yourself when you are most creative, comes out of the need to sift this loneliness, to, uh, to listen to this loneliness, to listen to the solitude even when you are in a great uh, crowd of people. Now the ordeals and the grief that drive the individual to uh, use his own creativity or her own creativity, and this applies to us all, uh, are uh, the sense of destiny uh, that is necessary if we are to use and appreciate our freedom. Freedom comes out of the way we use our destiny. Uh, and our destiny has meaning only because uh, we have uh, a freedom. As Beethoven used to say, I will grasp fate by the throat. This is what he said all through his life. Now here's a man who lived an exceedingly unhappy life. Stone deaf at 28, had his father an alcoholic, his mother died at 18, he had to take care of the family, never married, always longed for some uh, uh, woman uh, whom he might fall in love with never got any of these rewards, if I may call them that. <laughs> now, um, out of that came the Fifth Symphony, came the Ninth Symphony, came these beautiful uh, quartets, quintets at the end of his life. And now I want to push on to the relation between freedom, or the freedom to love, 
and the freedom to confront death. And I want to take these both together because they are interrelated. Uh, the same way freedom and destiny are interrelated. Uh, Abraham Maslow, a psychologist from Cambridge who had a heart attack some years ago, uh, he wrote me a letter after this heart attack in which he said, death and its ever-present possibility makes love, passionate love, more possible. I wonder if we could love passionately, if ecstasy would be possible at all, if we knew we'd never die. Now what uh, Abe Maslow is saying there is not simply, well, I've got a few more years. He's saying uh, that when I had this brush with death, uh, I became aware uh, of my destiny, uh, as we, a destiny we all will face, I became aware of this uh, as a source of passionate love, as a way of uh, genuinely uh, loving uh, somebody else. Now, in the last analysis, we love because we are lonely. We are born into this world with the necessity of becoming individuals. And this means, uh, as we develop, that we will always I have some loneliness. And out of this loneliness, there comes the need uh, to love. To love uh, uh, some other human being or some other human uh, beings. We love because we know we're going to die. And death has significance, like destiny, for death is the clearest example, of the, the clearest expression of destiny. Death has significance because we love. Otherwise, it wouldn't matter. Uh, but our loving, our friends, uh, our uh, uh, loved ones, comes out of the fact that we know someday we're going to lose them. Someday we're going to uh, have to say uh, goodbye. Now this, I don't say these things at all because I have gray hair. Uh, I say them because the child of three, four, and five is very much aware of death. The trouble is most of us adults uh, try to repress it because we're afraid of death ourselves. But the child, when a bird is killed, when a pet dies, uh, when you and I buckle a seatbelt on an airplane, uh, all of these things, when we cross a crowded street, or any street on a day like this, um, this these all are examples of our acting out our awareness of our mortality. Now you may think at times <coughs> that uh, uh, immortality would be a very good thing. And you read these science fiction uh, stories about how we're going to freeze each other in a, in a refrigerator for 200 years and then we'll come out again and start living all over again. Now, immortality would be a very bad idea, uh, in that sense, uh, at least. Uh, if you want a good description of immortality, uh, read the ancient Greek myths. On Mount Olympus, Zeus and his cohorts uh, went, never were going to die. Now, they stayed up in Mount Olympus and they were bored stiff. 
the only way they could get some interest in life, uh, well, they didn't have life, they can't, uh, in their existence, uh, was to look down and fall in love with some mortal. Uh, and the introduction of mortality gave the zest and the, uh, the liveliness to immortality. Jean Giraudoux, a playwright in modern France, wrote an interesting drama that I had the good fortune to see in Broadway a few years ago. It was called Amphitryon 38. And this means it was the 38th version of this ancient myth of Amphitryon. And the myth uh, goes as follows. It's just present in the drama. That Zeus gets very much in love uh, with the, uh, a woman down on earth, sees her through the windows of her house, and is completely smitten. Mercury says to Zeus, look, you're God of all, you can change these things. Why don't you declare war and have Amphitryon, who was a young general in the Greek army, called to war, and you go down masquerading as Amphitryon and uh, make love uh, with this woman. So Zeus thought it was a good idea and proceeded to do it. And then when he came back, he told Mercury uh, what, uh, this, what making love to a mortal was like. She will use little expressions, he says, little expressions that widen the abyss between us. She will say, when I was a child, or when I am old, or never in all my life, this stabs me, Mercury. We miss something, Mercury. We miss the poignance of the transient, the intimation of mortality, that sweet sadness of grasping at something you know you cannot hold. Now, I think these are beautiful words. The, the poignance of the transient is the gift that our destiny of death makes to us. Uh, the sweet sadness of grasping at something that we know uh, we cannot hold. Uh, the facing of death is the accepting of our uh, finiteness, our mortality. It means to join the club of the human, the club of the finite, the club of the vincible, the club of the vulnerable, the club of the poignant uh, mortals. A patient of mine uh, Oh, a month ago, uh, uh, was telling me about the great anxiety he had at presenting a case to a group of psychotherapists. He was uh, studying to be a psychotherapist, and this group of analysts was uh, he was to present a case before them, and he was afraid they would tear him all to pieces. On the, uh, but on the way to the meeting where he was to present this case, uh, he thought in his car. Look, I'm going to die someday. <clears throat> we'll all be dead someday, so let me do the best I can. Now, this strangely freed him from his, uh, his fear uh, of this group. <clears throat> Another uh, uh, patient that I uh, worked with, a, a psychiatrist from, who had had a tremendous anxiety about traveling. He had to travel a fair amount. 
Now he had been <coughs> some, oh what, ten years before to uh, another therapist with this anxiety, and the therapist had said to him, look, uh, you can always put a revolver in your suitcase and shoot yourself. Now the strange thing was this freed him, uh, at least to some extent, <coughs> not entirely, <coughs> as you can see, but <coughs> I don't think any of us ever entirely <coughs> get over the major problems of life. And I think it's a very good thing we don't, because it's out of our struggle with our destiny in that respect that our creativity, our growth comes. We got over all our problems, it would be like being on Mount Olympus. <coughs> uh, uninteresting, the loss of the poignance of the transient. <coughs> now this also freed uh, uh, this uh, uh, psychiatrist of uh, a good deal of his anxiety. This is what Nietzsche meant when he said, the idea of suicide has saved many lives. Uh, <coughs> the, the freedom to face death, the free, the Awareness that surely this is going to come, <coughs> um, but uh, uh, let me live the best I can uh, as I, <coughs> uh, in the years I do have. Augustine once said, it's only in the face of death <coughs> that man's self, that the human self, <coughs> is really <coughs> born. <coughs> now I'm quite aware that most of us repress the awareness of death and I think also repress the capacities to love that come uh, with uh, this awareness. But it's simply bred into our civilization uh, that, uh, especially say in Los Angeles, nobody ever dies in Los Angeles. They simply sprout wings and fly to heaven knows what planet. Um, and then uh, one moves out of the house immediately to, over, to forget the grief, all of which I think is, uh, uh, I'm not for it. <laughs> now, <clears throat> you may remember uh, Hubert Humphrey was a senator from uh, Minnesota, and he uh, was a man of considerable integrity and great value in Washington. He got uh, cancer and went back um, uh, as the cancer got worse, he went back to Washington and there was held a meeting of the Senate and House of Representatives to, uh, uh, to honor him. Now, various senators got up and spoke and they said such things as, this is a quote from one of them, get well soon, Hubert. We need you back here. Now, who were they kidding? They weren't kidding Humphrey because he courageously knew he was going to die. They weren't kidding these millions of people watching over TV either because uh, they could tell looking at this wizened person that he was going to die. But they were kidding themselves. Now, how much better, uh, more noble is the statement of, of uh, Senator Richard Newberger when he knew he was going to die of uh, cancer. When he said uh, that this freed me for a new appreciation of things I once took for granted. Eating lunch with a friend, 
scratching Moffat's ears and listening for his purrs, the company of my wife, reading a book under the quiet cone of my bed lamp at night. For the first time, I am savoring life. I realize finally that I am not immortal. Now the tragedy is that for many of us, this is the first time we are savoring life. And what I uh, want to get across to you is, as part of the as essential part of freedom, in its relation to the destiny of death, is that the way it can teach us to savor life in these moments uh, in which we are uh, now living, the way this freedom. Uh, if we can find it authentically, to the extent we can find it authentically, uh, will teach us also uh, to be with our own inner core uh, and also to create as a way of giving back to the universe what it has given uh, to us. Thank you. You didn't choose your parents, your family. This is destiny culturally. And then there's the destiny cosmically. Namely, we die. And regardless of all the advances of science, which incidentally I'm very much in favor of, but they don't change the, 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 the time you die very much. Aeschylus lived to be 80. Sophocles lived to be 90. Socrates lived to be 80. So the Bible put it way back in Israel times, three score and ten, which is 70 years, which is not bad. Now, the talk about avoiding death um, is misplaced uh, because death is the essence uh, of, the, of the final moment uh, which has made us human all the way along. No, I shouldn't say just death, because everything dies. Awareness of death, anticipation of death, is what makes you and I human. And there are all kinds of, I've been trying to say, good things that come from it. A number of the questions revolve around this question, as is true of many of the others. But does a belief in a better life in heaven, reincarnation, resurrection, interfere with our freedom to confront death and thus with our ability to live life fully? No, I was waiting for that question. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> because I knew when I uh, talked about immortality and that that, uh, that question would be bound to come up and would be in the minds of, of uh, probably the majority of you. Now, uh, in the first place, immortality is not a Christian doctrine. It's a doctrine that comes out of, the, of Neoplatonism in Greece. And it came into Christianity in the, in the uh, uh, second and third century A.D. What is the Christian doctrine is the resurrection. Uh, everlasting life is not a Christian doctrine. What is a do Christian doctrine is eternal life. Now, eternal life and resurrection have to do uh, with every moment that you live. They don't have to do simply with when you die. See, this is the, the um, illegitimate deduction that's, that's taken from them. 
Now, I happen to believe in mysticism, and I am very much influenced by not only Paul Tillich and my theological teachers, Reinhold Niebuhr and others that you may know about, but also the Oriental thinking. And in Oriental thinking you find many such ideas, reincarnation uh, and so on. Now, I think these things have to be judged in terms of their effect upon the people who believe them. Uh, if, if somebody does believe in reincarnation, I certainly don't uh, tell them that it's nonsense. In the first place and the last place. I don't know and you don't know and nobody knows. Nobody has come back to tell us. Mm -hmm. There are some plays that playing around with people dead for a couple hours and come back and tell what it is. I, I don't think that is to be taken seriously when we're talking about a resurrection or, or eternal life. What we are talking about is the rebirth of human um, beings. Karl Marx uh, said um, that uh, the, a religion is the opiate of the people. And what he meant by that <coughs> was that the belief in heaven was what uh, was the opiate for the Russian peasants, any peasants in Europe. They could accept their sacrificial living, sacrificing their very hard living. See, like the slaves in this country. They could accept that so long as they believed swing low sweet chariot. Uh, I'm go going to go to another world. Now this is the vicious aspect to the belief in immortality. Because it certainly was a great evil that there were slaves. And it certainly was a great evil that there were Russian peasants. Uh, the accepting of the hardships of life by virtue of your belief in a reward later on is to my mind uh, the anti-Christian point of view. Uh, we have suffering. We cannot avoid it. Um, I thought for five years with my tuberculosis, uh, I mean the odds of my living or dying were 50-50. I will die someday. I will leave people I very much love. Uh, and so will you. Now this suffering uh, is not um, something to be run away from. Aeschylus said, we really, we learn only through suffering. Um, and the Greeks made a great deal of that. Now, I am uh, trying to say that our griefs, our, um, our difficulties and so on, ought to be uh, faced directly, faced with one's friends, um, absorbed as best one can, um, as Beethoven say, absorbed his. Um, also, what I'm saying is that I wouldn't try to argue anybody out of <coughs> their belief in, say, reincarnation or uh, something after death. I would very strongly say that this is, can be uh, a way of avoiding the real activity that the poignancy of the transient, the grasping at this sweet with the sadness that we know we cannot hold. 
Amen. <laughs> Amen. Another question from the audience. Are you suggesting that only those who experience great suffering have the capacity to create? That is, is existential loneliness enough? No, no, no. I'm very glad to get that question. Existential loneliness is plenty suffering. <laughs> 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 no, we all uh, face it. I'm not at all saying that you've got to be a Beethoven or a Bach or a Leonardo da Vinci or something or other. No, I'm trying very hard to simply use these uh, to talk about human life that you and I face right now. I suffer a lot before I give a talk. This morning at 10 o'clock, if you had taken my pulse, and you would say, oh, you better go to a mental hospital for a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, now, this kind of suffering should not be dodged. Uh, it ought to be... Uh, human life is... Um, well, is made by virtue of the, the um, loneliness that we face. And existential loneliness <clears throat> can be just as profound because we always are on the brink of death. That's, a that's an existential idea. I'm going home on, tonight on the Northwest Oriental Airlines. Are they going to get up out of all this snow? Are we going to land against the Rocky Mountains? Uh, uh, one never can predict these things. <clears throat> and the, that's what we call existentialism. <laughs> but what I am trying to get across is the normal life of any given person has these, uh, these experiences of loneliness, experiences of, of grief, uh, sometimes greater, sometimes not so great, but these are what should be absorbed into making one's freedom, one's ally, um, and fighting destiny, if you will, accepting destiny if you have to, uh, acknowledging destiny, but out of the paradox between these two comes the meaningful human life. <clears throat> uh, we're running close on the time. Perhaps one more question. I've been told that almost all people are afraid of freedom. Do you agree? <clears throat> and if this is true, for what reason are people afraid of it? Yeah, that's also an excellent question. You have very uh, <laughs> excellent question writers here. <laughs> But let me say regarding that, that obviously we can't get to all the questions, but we'll give them to Dr. May to uh, take on that Northwest plane with him, and he can ponder them, and maybe they'll find their way into a new book. Well, if any, anybody also wants to write me a letter, um, they can do it in care of Dr. Uh, Meisel, and, uh, because I, I'm sorry, we don't have time to go on. But um, now what was the question you asked me? <laughs> Afraid of freedom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, we all are afraid of freedom. Uh, do you remember the Grand Inquisitor in Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov? Well, get that out of a library and read it. It's only about 12 pages, and a big novel of 300 pages, and it's in the index. Read what this Grand Inquisitor says. And he says at great length and very persuasively, that human beings are afraid of freedom. 
And that's what Jesus never understood when he said, the truth shall make you free. People don't want freedom. Um, and now the church, he says, has learned to give them what they do want, namely miracles and the comfort and the miraculous. Now, we all are afraid of freedom because what freedom does is to open all these different channels. And then how are we going to choose one? And a choice you make, uh, choices are essential if you make, may be the wrong choice. And that's a, mis that's a mistake you have to bear. And that's a, that's a chance you have to take. And this is why freedom always brings so much risk. This is why I said at the beginning that freedom opens up all possibilities, or all sorts of po different possibilities, it's the one thing that we cannot predict. And in this sense, freedom is dangerous. Now, whatever you do, uh, you will find that you, you make enemies by doing it. Um, and in, in as much as it's going to work either way, um, I advise you to go ahead and do then what you yourself believe in, what represents your freedom, uh, regardless of the... Um, enemies you make. But always the question you have to ask yourself is, am I doing this to escape, say, responsibility, which is a part of destiny? And is my freedom and destiny, <clears throat> how do those work back and forth uh, uh, together? Well, I wish you the best of luck in facing all these fears. <clears throat> I wish I could I wish I could stay here for days with you and hours more with you, but there is destiny, namely uh, time. <laughs>